I'm Francesca and um, I'm chairing tonight's uh, event. So just to briefly introduce myself, I did uh, biochemistry as an undergraduate at Oriel College. I literally walked across the road to start the DPhil at Lincoln in October um, in antibody therapies for coronavirus. But more importantly, um, we'll move on to tonight's proceedings. So each of our panellists will have 15 minutes to give a talk. Um, and then we'll move on to a discussion amongst the panellists so they'll have a chance to respond to each other. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce our panel this evening. Uh, so first up we have Dr Eric Sidebottom, who after studying at Corpus Christi, uh, qualified at St Bart's Bollinger's Hospital in London. He then moved back to Oxford and into academia and was appointed University Lecturer in Experimental Pathology at the Dunn School in 1969 and a medical tutor at Lincoln in 1972. He is Assistant Director of Clinical Research at the ICRF, now better known as Cancer Research UK, and has been a freelance consultant for the Wellcome Trust and the Department of Health. Um, and now, as his book, Oxford Medicine, Walk Through Nine Centuries, will tell you, his mission is to convince the world that world history has been determined more by disease than wars, kings, and politicians. I don't know if that's a consolation in these times or not. Second, we will have Professor David Boat, who uh, completed his undergrad also at Corpus Christi, so it seems we have a lot to thank him for tonight. Um, he completed a DPhil on monoclonal antibody-based analysis of intracellular trafficking pathways before returning to his clinical course. Um, he's held posts at Yale and Heidelberg, where he established his research group, um, before returning to Oxford, the Dunn School, and to Lincoln. Uh, and his most recent role sees him as the Associate Head of the Medical Sciences Division. His research into fundamental cell biology looks at how changes in protein tra post-translational modifications can lead to severe diseases uh, such as Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes and cancer. And last but not least, we have Mustafa Idawan, um, who is a member of our own MCR here. Um, and he's studying for a DPhil in molecular cellular biology at the Dunn School in Professor Jordan Rack's lab. While still a high school student, he worked in the physiology labs at Istanbul University before moving on to do his bachelor's at the University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, during which he also conducted a three year long project um, in the Boulder electron microscopy labs. Currently, his research focuses on the biogenesis of centrioles, which are the structures in cells that help organize uh, the cell to allow proper division. He's also an elective fellow of the Linnaean Society, reflecting his interest in natural history. Uh, so if you'll join me in welcoming tonight's panel. And first up, we have Dr. Well, this is a bit fearsome, really. It's just like an undergraduate lecture theatre with the front rows empty. <laughs> I was here about 10 years ago doing much the same thing, but I, apparently I had about two hours to do it. <laughs> I don't know if any of you were here. I think, I think Dave was here mm -hmm. for you. Um, but that was before this room was converted. And, uh, there were people sitting on window ledges. You don't have any window ledges now, I see. A very quick gallop through Lincoln's medical history. And it started, well, did it start with this guy? I find it extremely difficult to find much about Lincoln College's medical history. But we do know a bit about John Radcliffe. He didn't discover anything. <laughs> he wasn't a good scientist. 
He didn't even collect books. In fact, there's a wonderful story because in his will, I think he left about 140,000 pounds. That was that was his success. Uh, and in the will, he said, "I want you to build a, a library." And of course, that's the Radcliffe camera. And one of his colleagues said, "Radcliffe built a library. He doesn't have any books. It's a bit like a eunuch building a harem." <laughs> <laughs> so that was the reaction to, to Radcliffe's library. On the good side, he was obviously a very conservative doctor, which probably meant he killed less people than most of his colleagues, because I don't think doctors at that time were, were terribly good at saving lives. Um, he was a very interesting man, and probably the best thing he did uh, was bought a farm in what is now Milton Keynes. That became part of the Radcliffe Trust, which still exists. And that farm became Milton Keynes and made the Radcliffe Trust very wealthy indeed, and that's still going. So you can discuss John Radcliffe if you like, although I don't think there's a lot more to say. The next scientist of any note was George Dreyer. And the date here, 1912 to 1934, when he was a fellow of Lincoln, and it seems to me, he was actually appointed professor, I think, in 1907, a few years before that. I think Lincoln must have decided at that time to take the professor of pathology as a fellow. And I think that's the beginning of that, that, uh, that link. And so George Dreyer was professor for those, whatever it is, 22 years. And he did a few good things, particularly in the early days, during the First World War, he introduced um, typhoid vaccines and paratyphoid vaccines and set up appropriate machinery for, for producing vaccines for the armed forces. He also, curiously, was the first guy to uh, invent a pilot's oxygen mask. Uh, people started flying in the First World War and they were getting a bit of oxygen when they went a bit high. George Dreyer came up with, uh, with an oxygen mask for them. But this is the guy that we're all interested in, and I hope you're interested in. I hope you know a bit about him. In fact, I, I was very delighted to see there's a little, um, little exhibition downstairs of uh, some of Flory's work, the penicillin work. So there is our Flory. And that's why he's famous, because in 1945 he shared the Nobel Prize with Alexander Fleming and Ernest Chain for the introduction, for the discovery of penicillin and its curative effect in various infectious diseases. That was the start of the antibiotic era. No antibiotics before penicillin, that was the first. But of course it led to frenetic activity to isolate a lot more antibiotics. I'm even fascinated that we've even got industry represented here tonight who, who took on that work which was started here. So he got lots of honours. He lived from 1898. As you all know, he was born in Australia, but his father was a bootmaker from Whitney and his wife was sick with tuberculosis and they were advised to seek out a warmer climate, so they emigrated to Australia. The, wi the wife died, and Flora then ma married, I think, the nursemaid who'd been looking after the children and looking after his sick wife. And he was the last of si six children. He had five sisters, 
He was the youngest. Um, but he was very successful at school and at university. And he arrived in Oxford in January 1922 as a Rhodes Scholar. Went to Magdalen College. Following year got a first class degree in physiology. It's interesting in those days, they, uh, nearly all these people who came with good degrees from abroad were made to do physiology schools. In fact, Henry Harris was the only one who escaped that. And so he became a demonstrator in physiology and he came under the wing of Sherrington, who some of you may have heard of as a Nobel Prize winning neurophysiologist, uh, professor of physiology. He then went from Oxford to Cambridge and then to America and then back to London. He kept winning scholarships or fellowships or prizes. And then he moved to Cambridge as a fellow at Keyes College. 1931, he went to Sheffield as professor of pathology. And then in 1935, he came back to Oxford. And I've written what only just see below. And then the first penicillin paper was in 1940. He got an FRS in 41, but not for his penicillin work. He shared the Nobel Prize in 45. He was president of the Royal Society from 60 to 65, which is when I was an undergraduate medical student in Oxford. And he gave all his professors lectures, even though he was president of the Royal Society. He had fulfilled his obligations as professor of pathology. He gave us a very good systematic course of lectures. And then he ended his career at Queen's College. So there's the Dunn School when it was completed in 1927. That's probably more recognisable nowadays. The appointment is quite interesting. Uh, this, this looks a bit complicated, but basically we have a fancy board of electors and the pluses and minuses are the bits. The pluses are those who we thought were in favour of Flory and the minuses are those who were against him, who wanted a real pathologist, because he wasn't really thought of as a pathologist, he was thought of as an experimental physiologist, really. Mellonby, Sir Edward Mellonby, was the secretary of the Medical Research Council and the big norms, and he was a great fan of Flory. But he didn't get to the board meeting because the train either broke down or was late or there was a problem. And in his absence, the board decided to appoint Matthew Stewart, who was a professor of pathology at Leeds, a safe pair of hands. But before they'd signed any papers or closed the meeting, Melanie rushed in and said, you can't do that. And so they didn't. They changed. And if they hadn't done that, none of us would be here today. Because I certainly wouldn't have come to Oxford to do pathology. Because uh, Harris wouldn't have followed, you know, the whole world would be different, wouldn't it? Penicillin, that's what we're here for. Right? Well, that's what I'm here for. Most, med most important medical development of the 20th century. And I think that's a reasonable claim. Saved millions of lives in the war and since. The first antibiotic, openly antibiotic era. Several Nobel Prizes. Enormous benefit to Oxford. But the financial bit is not penicillin, it's cephalosporin, and if I've got time, if I'm not being uh, stopped, I will tell you about that at the end. This goes on. If you look at Google, Fleming, everybody knows Fleming, the world knows Fleming, the world doesn't know Flory. It's interesting, if you put in chain as well, chain comes somewhere in the middle, it 
Shane gets more hits than Flory does. And this is the sort of team of the, of the gun school in uh, 1940-ish. And the, the, those with the yellow around their heads are the penicillin people, Flory in the middle, Jane and Heakley on the next row, and Edward A. Brown standing at the back. And here is Norman Heakley, uh, the unsung hero of penicillin. And uh, here is a little book recently published by David Cranston and a bloke called Eric Seibotter <laughs> called Penicillin and the Legacy of Norman Heatley. So the little book is really a tribute to Norman Heatley. That is possibly the world's most important animal experiment conducted by Flory and Heatley on Saturday, May the 25th, 1940. Eight mice were taken. I can hear Norman Heatley saying, eight mice were taken. They were all given a lethal dose of streptococci. Four were controls, not given anything else. Two were given one injection of 10 milligrams of penicillin. Two were given five injections of five milligrams. It's one of those experiments that doesn't need statistics. You can see on the bottom row, all mice, all the untreated mice were sick by eight hours. And they were all dead by 16 hours. Those that had two doses of penicillin survived four and six days. Those that had five doses, one survived forever, as, as mice do, and one survived for two weeks. It was quite an impressive experiment. It was repeated, of course, many times. And it resulted in the first Oxford Penicillin paper, August 24, 1940. Penicillin is a chemotherapeutic agent. Fleming never really said that pen his penicillin was a therapeutic agent. He didn't seem to consider that. Flory commented that humans are 3,000 times bigger than mice, so they were going to need rather a lot more penicillin. And he couldn't get the pharmaceutical industry to produce stuff for him, so he decided that the lab had to become a factory. Again, Norman Heatley came in, and you, most of you will have heard of the uh, uh, ceramic bedpans, which are shown here. And we had five or six penicillin girls to farm production. Anybody heard of um, Heath Robinson? That is the apparatus of the penicillin that treated the first patients was produced in. That's Gordon Sanders who's standing there. First, two of the first patients, Albert Alexander, I guess many of you would have heard of. All the books say that Albert Alexander was uh, scratched his face on one of his roses, but I've got information that said he was actually injured in a bombing raid in Southampton. So it's a dilemma for his story, and I've got two totally different stories of how he was uh, injured. Sadly, the medical notes hopeless, they don't even mention how he was, how he was injured. Yeah, we've got copies of his medical notes from the time. The result is a rose garden. And I wonder how many of you have seen this. If you haven't seen it, I think you jolly well should go and have a look. This memorial stands outside the Botanic Garden, opposite Magdalen College. And it was presented by the Mary Lasker Foundation. The Mary Lasker Foundation foundation that gave the money for the Lincoln MCR. I wonder how many of you know that. And Lincoln, of course, was the first college to have an MCR, and that was because Flory said the college should have a middle common room. 
So that's, you'll recognise the replicant for as it used to be, that's where the first injections were given. Uh, the results of the clinical trial were written up in 1941 in this Lancet paper. Florey couldn't get British pharmaceutical industry to collaborate, so he decided he'd have to go to America. So the, he and Norman Dietrich flew to America. There's Florey's on the right hand end, and the bloke sitting in the chair was one of Florey's colleagues and friends who organised the Americans, who did a good job. This gentleman, Edward Abraham on the left, Guy Newton on the right, was responsible for working out the structure of penicillin. And he fell out with his professor, who was Sir Robert Robinson, who's also got a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Abraham got it right, Robinson got it wrong. As a result of Oxford's work, this chap called Rotsu in Sardinia decided he'd look in the sewage in the sea in Sardinia um, in the sewage and he found a Keflosporium uh, mold which is a bit like the penicillium and he decided he couldn't he didn't have the resources to work with it so he sent it to the MRC in London who gave it to Flory who then gave it to Abraham Abraham worked on it uh, so there you are Guy Newton worked with Abraham he was a very good biochemist in 52, they, they found another penicillin, a slightly different penicillin from the Keflosporin orient. Then in 53, they found a new antibiotic, Keflosporin C. This time, it was patented because penicillin wasn't patented, and so it made a lot of money. The first treatments came along in 64, and it now is the most used family of antibiotics. It's the most successful antibiotic. Unfortunately, Abraham set up three trusts, uh, and one of, one of the main beneficiaries of those trusts is this college. Just a few pictures. There's Norman Heatley down the hole. In, in 1940, they decided they'd got a lot of highly inflammable, explosive organic solvents, and probably they ought to be buried underground. Norman used to say he dug out two tons of soil in, in a few hours down this hole. There he is with Fletcher, who was a bloke who injected the antibiotics. And there they are 50 years later, rather mature. Following Flory came Henry Harris. And, uh, Harris was my supervisor. I was his second Field student when I came to the Dunn School in 65 or 6. Actually, that's quite an unusual one. You didn't see him smiling so cheerfully. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more like when you isn't. <laughs> he was succeeded by Herman Wallman, who some of you may know. And I think that's about it. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you. Good. Of course, I'd be very happy to uh, engage in discussions or disputations with you if we have time afterwards. Um, thank you very much for that, for bringing that all to life. Um, we move very quickly on to Professor David Well, Good evening. Thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to tell you about a, a project. And I've chosen just one project. And the reason that I've selected this project is that it arose out of a discussion that took place about 50 metres that way over lunch between two fellows of the college, uh, a good 15 years ago now. 
and it's involved in the succeeding decade and a half, uh, serially, undergraduates, graduate students, final year medical students, and the Kemp Junior Research Fellow, all members of Lincoln College. So there's a constant link and thread through the whole project that I'm going to tell you about today. And the story that I'm going to tell you really is a story of, of serendipity to a certain extent, and it's still very much an ongoing story. And it concerns material that is found inside the body that we regard usually as, as dangerous and pathological. It's fragments of protein broken off normal protein and then assembled initially into thin fibrils and then into complex meshes and then into material that entrains lots of water and produces a gel. And this is an example of one of these proteins made as a fragment in vitro forming a gel. But the reason that we're interested in it has to do with what happens to the pathology where this material accumulates in the body. And the disease that I'm going to talk to you about is something that will be familiar indirectly to, I think, everybody in the room, and that's Alzheimer's disease. And I suppose if you wanted to summarise it as a slow and inexorable disintegration of self, that's a rather bland description of just how terrible this is for the sufferers and for their carers and families. And I have a series of images, which are very famous, and a number of you may have seen them already, of the descent into this disintegration. So an English artist who's actually born in America, but he subsequently became British, um, William uh, Udemoe, started as a, a, a portrait artist and, and developed his style over many years, but in 1995, he was diagnosed with the early stages of a dementing process, which worsened over the years. And so you can see his self-portraits beginning to change and become less and less structured. By 2000, this was his perception of himself. And if you look at the echoes in that final drawing of the 1967 portrait, if that doesn't raise the hairs on the back of your neck, I don't know what will. He survived seven years after that, requiring increasing care as he was completely unable to do anything for himself. So that's the disease process we're interested in. And we can look post-mortem and you can see brain shrinkage. You compare the two sides there, the normal side and the outside of the AD side, the shrunken part of the brain in that section, obviously looked at post-mortem. If you look at the material in the brain of an AD patient, you find abnormal deposits. You can almost see that there's a fibrillar organization in this one. And when you stain for the protein fragment that's accumulating, you can see huge numbers of these deposits. And of course, these are post-mortem, but what we can do is we can look in life. But over all of this time, We've been able to describe the process very well, but it's still an unmet need. And in 2010, um, Martin Citron Eli, Eli Lilly, in a long review in uh, Nature Reason Drug Discovery, said, largest unmet medical need in neurology, current drugs improve symptoms, but don't have profound disease-modifying effects. And I'm sorry to say that in 2017, we could say exactly the same thing. The accumulation that we can see after death 
we can see in life by scanning methods that actually produce, use compounds that bind this material as it's accumulating in the brain. So we can follow the process, but it doesn't give us any clues as to what's actually happening. So we have to go back to the fragments themselves. If you look at the fragments of the protein and you just watch what happens if you leave them at a physiological temperature of 37 degrees, in a series of test tubes at gradually higher concentrations, this is a buffer, essentially water, and this is a very high concentration of the fragment. And what you can see is this material actually accumulates, and this looks just like plaque if you stain it or if you look at it in an electron microscope. But what was more interesting for us, and this was something that was noticed by a Lincoln graduate student, is that the meniscus changes. This material is surface active, like a detergent. And that was the clue that drove the rest of the, of the study, the rest of the project. And it turns out this material is actually one particular amyloid precursor. When it forms this material, it actually forms a gel, so that you can turn the tube that it's formed in upside down, and it remains in the bottom of the tube. And you can take the material out, and you can look at it in a scanning electron microscope. This meshwork has collapsed because this is now dehydrated, but you can see some of the level of interdigitation of fibrils that go to make up this material. And you might imagine that this material, if it's accumulating on the surface of the cell, which it does, if you look by electron microscopy at the cell accumulating it on the surface, eventually, I've actually marked it out here, this is where the cell is. It's the only bit of the cell you can see. It's now completely lost under a sea of this material. And you might imagine that if you're the kind of cell that talks to other cells, like is one way of describing a brain cell, then this inability to see your surroundings or communicate with it is going to have a profound effect on function. And eventually the cell dies and is lost. So you end up then with this shrunken uh, brain material and loss of cognitive function that we've seen. So we were, we were very interested in the relationship between accumulating this material on the surface of cells and the damage and the gel formation that might actually lead to further damage to other cells. And so we sought for a while ways of looking at molecules that might affect this process. So initially we started out to do this in order to understand the process, but quite quickly realized, of course, that if we could find compounds that had this kind of behavior, we might be en route to being able to talk about the sort of small molecule that might eventually become a drug that would stop this from happening. And that was the point at which we got very excited and we started talking to uh, what was then called ISIS innovation. But this has nothing to do with terrorism of any sort, despite what you may have heard about technology transfer in the University of Oxford. <laughs> and that was the beginning of the spin-out company that's now funded some of the, the more commercial developments of this project. But what we did was we looked for compounds that could actually distinguish between the assembly of this material at an air-water interface and the assembly that happens on a cell surface. Now, they might have been the same thing, but we were able to devise an assay that looked at these separately. And if they'd been the same thing, then all of our compounds would have been equipotent in two assays with an air-water interface and without an air-water interface, but they weren't. We had compounds that only worked where there was uh, an air-water interface, and we had compounds that only worked where there was no air-water interface, 
and that was one of the most exciting ones out of the initial screen. And moving on from that, we were able to look at in vivo assays. So we did a variety of in vitro assays to study how these small molecules were stopping the assembly process. But we then moved on to animal experiments. Now, unfortunately, we're cheapskates, so we can't afford furry animals like mice. So we have to use worms. And the starting point is a small nematode worm. It's been hugely influential as a tool because it is a multicellular living organism that has a variety of tissue behaviors. It feeds, it mates and reproduces, and it has, some people would claim, memory. I'm not so sure about that, but some people claim that they can train these worms. But from our point of view, what we were doing was looking at worms that had been modified so they made amyloid in the muscles of their body wall. And that damaged the muscles, so they became paralyzed. So we had an assay. We could switch on the expression of this abnormal protein. Perfectly healthy worms that were swimming around on a lawn of bacteria. They have funny habits, and they like that. They swim around on a lawn of bacteria, eating. And they will continuously do that, unless they're paralyzed. So it's a simple visual assay, whether or not you've damaged the muscle by accumulating this material. So we were able to use this kind of approach, show that the compounds that we found in our in vitro assays were actually able to stop accumulation. So here, in the red state, what you see is the accumulated material in the body wall muscles of a worm. After treatment with one of the compounds that came from the spleen that I've mentioned, we've got no accumulation of this material. And in fact, we can also see that when we do this on a much larger scale, and we look at what happens when you force the worms to start expressing this material, you see this paralysis curve. They start out 100% of them non-paralyzed, and the control here, the black line, the paralysis curve, by 48 hours, they're all excuse me, completely paralyzed. And an inactive compound essentially parallels that behavior. But we started to see compounds that did this. And we've got now examples of worms which survive for much longer, actually not paralyzed. And so this is the material that we're now using for making second generations and third generations of screen by exploring chemical space in more detail, and which we intend to take into other animal models in the near future. So this work was largely done by students who are not all, but many were graduates of Lincoln College. And it involved uh, Ashraf Malas, who was the first Kemp Junior Research Fellow here. And a number of the observations that were made in the early stages were actually made by undergraduate students doing their third year final school projects. So there's a very strong Lincoln thread through all of this. And I've listed some of the names involved here. I'm not going to pick out individuals. So this is a story of something which is still going on that's had a very strong link with Lincoln from the very beginning. Uh, and I'd be very happy to talk about it in more detail or to take some of the lessons that we think we've learned about taking very basic science and serendipitous observations through to developments that are heading, we hope, towards the clinic uh, in the discussion. So thank you.
wonderful link and contribution to that story. Mr. Fat next. I'd like to start with thank you to the organizers first. And um, this is a wonderful event that we really enjoy. Um, and also the fellow panelists that I've been enjoying their talks, and of course the audience that thanks for coming here. So the title of my talk is What's Past is Prologue. Now I'm taking this from Shakespeare, from his Othello, and it's really the situation in Oxford that cell biology in Oxford needs to be explained in the light of its past. And I'm going to talk about the transition into cell biology in Oxford and the future of biology and what we expect from ourselves to do in the future. So, unlike John Radcliffe, I do collect books. Uh, and uh, I, I visit the second-hand booksellers a lot. And some of the hunting treasures that I'd like to bring here is uh, a book that was written by Mac Berlane and on, the, uh, on Howard Florey's life until penicillin, autographed by, well, signed by Margaret Florey, Howard Florey's wife. And that is to uh, Ian Crombie, who used to be a philosophy professor at Wadham College. And I got a second one, too, and I got these for five pounds, by the way. Um, and it is the similar stuff where this book tells about the penicillin and the after, and luckily that's also um, signed by Margaret Florey. Um, and the funny story is that I was five minutes earlier than Sir Paul Nurse to get these books. <laughs> so, uh, so this is pre-60 in the, in the dance school. Uh, I call it the era of Florey, and we heard it from uh, Dr. Eric Seinbottom today. A lot of Howard Florey, um, you've got a lot of Norman Heatley, Edward Pamley Abraham, which I'm very thankful for because I'm getting my uh, scholarship from his trust. Uh, and the keywords of the era were immunology, viruses, macrophages, leukocytes, lymphocytes, things you hear from pathological studies. And of course, penicillin, Howard Florey and his team, and cephalosporin by uh, Pamley Abraham. But then this man. Sir Henry Harris, but whom I call really my new hero in science, um, he, he refused uh, to his PhD advisor, Howard Florey, uh, who told him to work on uh, chemotaxis, but he said, no, I'm gonna uh, you know, transit this work into something new, and he was following the work that was done in the United States over that time, which was transiting into cell biology from pathology. And of course, Sir Henry Harris was uh, interested in tumors, nucleus, nucleoli, uh, cell fusion, and cytoskeleton, which I'm gonna later talk about. So what was happening pre-60s in the United States East Coast in terms of cell biology? Albert Claude, uh, who actually escaped from Nazi Germany and came to the United States to work on his biology, basically, published this paper, The Constitution of Protoplasm. So what protoplasm is, is that you got a cell and its constituents, and he was trying to explain what is inside the cell, and this was published in Science. Claudet's thoughts on the, that he had thoughts on small cellular contents. Well, before these guys, cell was really a stupid thing. So you got the cytoplasm, nucleus, and a plasma membrane, but he's saying that in the light microscopy, they can see small particles that they don't know what they are, then they cannot resolve it. Uh, over that time, of course, science was a popular topic. People used to talk about it during coffee times, actually non-scientists. And um, Albert Gessler, who was the owner of Interchemical Corporation at New Jersey, reads this article 
and sees uh, Clavide's frustration and contacts him saying that, look, we got the first electron microscope in the United States. Why don't you come with your specimens and try to look at them at the, at the company? And he, of course, contacted uh, Keith Porter uh, here, uh, Albert Clavide, and Ernest Pullum was the guy who was the engineer at the company, and he was basically looking at the samples, and here is the first image of a eukaryotic cell imaged under electron microscopy in 1944. So this on, it really gave us bigger ideas into what's inside the cell, what's inside what's called the protoplasm. And so basically, after this foundation of modern cell biology, you move from this you know, dumb uh, schematic illustration to more complicated illustrations, which is here drawn by Keith Porter, uh, who was my mentor's mentor back in the day, um, and uh, now he's in Boulder. So what was, I was talking about Sir Henry Harris, but what was the focus of Sir Henry Harris? He was really transforming the view, and his main organelle was nucleus. And um, nucleus is where your genetic material is packaged, basically. And one of the things he did, he actually found artificial ways to fuse two cells. So you've got one cell here and another cell, and I'm not gonna go into the details, don't worry. Um, and he, he basically makes a binucleated cell, which is what I call the compound cell. Um, so with that, he applied this uh, cell fusion idea to elucidating the nature of cancer versus healthy cells. So he had a cell which was cancerous and he had a cell that's less cancerous, almost healthy. And when he fused them, fused them, what happened? Well, this basically led to the discovery of the basis of tumor suppression phenomenon, where you have these two cells, that when they are fused, the result cell, the compound cell, is actually now less malignant than what it was. So this was against the current consensus over that time that uh, the cancer is caused by something coming from outside and that dominates what's inside the cell. But obviously this experiment's shown that uh, it, it is actually, it does have the ability to suppress the malignancy that comes from outside. And this paper went, what's, you know, with today's terms, viral. <laughs> well, Sir Henry Harris wasn't only a good biologist, but he also really enjoyed coming to the college and to the dinners, etc. Um, and he enjoyed reading literature. I also, I read these from Cyclops' uh, writings, by the way. Uh, and he listened to good music. In a way, uh, what my friend, one of my friends would call, he did a lot of only uh, uh stuff during his life. And here is, the, here is an archive document that I found for you from 1994. This is the meal uh, plan from Lincoln College. We got Sir Henry Harris in the room, Professor George Brownlee, who did really amazing studies in um, work that led to cures of hemophilia B. Professor Day, who was a famous chemist over that time, Dr. Atkins, who gave a talk actually here. Uh, you know him with his physical chemistry books. So Rex Richards, who used to be a fellow of Lincoln College, and who did pioneering studies in NMR. Dr. Greenfield, another uh, famous scientist, and Dr. Heatley, of course, or Dr. Heatley. And Professor James Watson, yes, yeah. Professor James Watson. 
Uh, Watson was elected as an honorary fellow that year to the college. And I also found this document from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories archives. Um, as you can see, the, the letter comes from the rector saying, as you will know, you'll need to attend at the beginning of the college meeting on Wednesday, 9th March, 1994, and take the following oath in order to be formally admitted as a fellow. And I'm not going to go into the details of the lessons. Okay, so Watson recently visited Lincoln MCR, talking with uh, the chaps and the, the ladies. Uh, you can see he's enjoying his time over here. So he still comes to the college. But beyond these, what I call the Wongi Wongi stuff, um, what he used to do, Sir Henry Harris, bringing new aspects to the stage. And this was actually the work on cytoskeleton. He used to read a lot of work from Keith Porter, who used to work on cytoskeleton. And with that, he expanded the interest in Down School beyond pathology and immunology. And Fiona Watt, one of his uh, DPhil students, as well as Dr. Eric Seidlatton, who we share the honor today to be here, um, and they did these studies about microtubule organizing centers in mammalian cells. I'm going to explain you what cytoskeleton is. So here is one of us, uh, and you can see that the skeletal system is helping us to basically uh, hold our organelles all to, or organs all together and not collapse. It helps us move, and the unit of the skeletal system is basically a bone. Now, cells themselves, they do have their own cytoskeleton system as well, but skeleton system, which is called cytoskeleton, which is quite accurate. And it is composed of these molecules called microtubules, act, structures called microtubules, actin, and intermediate filaments. And so, as I was saying, cytoskeleton keeps uh, cells intact, he, it helps cells to move. I can actually, I mean, cells moving, you can imagine. Um, and what is it good for? For this, I'm going to run a video. So here we go. Here you have the cells that are dividing. So microtubules basically helping cells to divide, as you can see here. And here are the chromosomes at the start, and they're basically partitioning equally to the two polars of the division. So what organizes these microtubules are these structures called centrosomes. And centrosomes are uh, of my interest currently. How do centrioles regulate their growth? This is what I look at in the lab on a daily basis. I aim at revealing the growth principles of centrioles using genetic, biochemical, biophysical methods, as well as microscopy and mathematical computation. And the ultimate question is design principles. What are the design principles of how cells build dynamic machineries from nanoscale building blocks? Now you ask me, what's the future of cell biology? What's next? This is a hard question, but I try to come up with some answers. Well, as you know, uh, Dr. Well, Professor David Bowe actually mentioned about his work on uh, worms. Great, and we use millions, flies, worms, fishes in the lab today, but we really need to expand further. We, use, we, we need to use new model organisms to address niche questions and novel cellular machineries to addre address some of the new, uh, basically, phenomena, like how would you uh, live in extreme environments? Why not use um, some other organisms to uh, address these questions? Of course, finding out the new, the universal design principles for biological nanoscale machineries. 
and uh, pushing the technology and reassessing the existing questions again, just like what they did in pre-60s in the United States, where they used electron microscopes to address questions of centuries, basically. I mean, if I'm not wrong, nucleus goes as old as 18th century in terms of observations, yeah. Um, so that's really amazing. And some of you may notice Tukey, John Tukey, who has a statistical test. He once said, greatest value of a picture is when it forces us to notice what we never expected to see. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Now, what are the prerequisites? I'm now gonna talk to my peers, students, so this is a book uh, yeah. concerning the origin of malignant tumors. And it was retranslated by Sir Henry Harris with wonderful footnotes. And in the preface of that book, he says, young scientists rarely visit libraries these days. And that is a concern. Yossi Schlesinger, who's also a, quite a famous biologist from the United States, I want to read his own sentences. What I'm trying to tell them is that they have to read broad literature because many times the thing that's going to be more useful for them and would lead them to further development is a different topic that they haven't realized how it's going to their work. No one goes to libraries. Everything occurs between you and the computer and you are overwhelmed by information. So what he's trying to say is that escape those keyboards. Maybe see a library or maybe open a journal and actually look at the contents and what's going on in cell biology or any field, really, per se, um, in your field and what's going on in your field other than your work. And I think the future of cell biology, really, um, the essence lies in the heart of just that. Thank you. to respond to each other and maybe ask any questions of each other that, that you have. So where do you, where do you want to start? Well, I think yeah, Mustard has raised a lot of interesting points there, but I can confirm some of your ideas. I mean, Henry Harris started looking at funny systems. Well, first of all, for his own defil, he invented a system to follow the, the migration of polymorphs, a chemotactic thing. And that was innovative. But then he went, when he, as you said correctly, refused Flory's invitation to carry on with that work and said he was going a different way. And he wanted to work with dividing cells. And he chose a giant unicellular alga called Acetabularia. Has anybody heard of Acetabularia? It's apparently seven, uh, several centimeters long, and the nucleus sits right at the bottom. And you can enucleate the cell just by chopping off the last bit of the, uh, the, the stalk. And he then did a lot of work in RNA turnover in enucleate things. So that's, that's a good example, I think, of, of funny systems that people probably don't know about. And the idea for cell fusion uh, is another thing that came to him by following your advice, if we can do it backwards. He was then director of a new cell biology unit at Botanical Institution, and do you remember where he was? Yeah, John Innes, thank you, John Innes, yeah. And he happened to go in the library and 
casually look at some journals, and he looked at an ECR paper, experimental cell research, and found a mechanism uh, to fuse cells together using a virus. And Okada, who was a Japanese scientist who was interested in that, had described the method. Henry had learned from one of the botanists in John Innes that uh, fungal hi-fi could fuse together. And so that gave him the idea of fusing different cells uh, to produce heterocarions. Heterocarions is, is a cell with different nuclei in it. And so those two things came from following your advice, really. So I have a question, which I think is, is of sort of general interest, and, and the description that we've all offered in, in our various ways relates from observations made at the scale of the human eye to microscopy of one sort or another, getting gradually more and more refined in terms of the spatial resolution that you can achieve. Sure. But very often, that is at the expense of ceasing to look at a living system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Over time, Over in different places. Yeah. It, yeah. Do you think that that's a, that's a sort of true problem in the sense that what we now have is almost a bifurcation? Mm -hmm. We've got some methods that enable us to look mm -hmm. over time, sometimes at very tight time resolutions, mm -hmm. over potentially long periods of time in time lapse and so on, and keep systems alive while we do that. But we also have extremely high, in some cases, atomic resolution imaging techniques that require that the tissue's dead. Yeah. What would we be able to do if we could actually get that kind of resolution in a living system? You know, there are new studies with carbofibers. I don't know if uh, we're familiar with that. But um, now what they're trying to do is with certain uh, sensors, just like camera sensors, that are attached to carbofibers, they're trying to poke into the cell while it's living and try to monitor what's going on within the cell. And this is, this is actually beyond in vivo, because when we say in vivo, we're looking at the things from outside. Um, now, what they're trying to push further is that looking at things both in vivo, which is living organism, and that within that organism. Um, I think this is a possibility which will come around actually no more than probably 20, 30 years, I believe. Um, and of course, what you pointed out that we have to look at the structures, uh, fine, refined structures to understand the biology, I completely agree with that. Um, and that today, the cryo-EM studies, which wasn't very much cherished back in the day, is now gaining quite a lot of momentum, right? Um, and that's gonna help hopefully uh, move it a little further. But one of the areas I think that we would argue is, is increasingly important is the interdisciplinarity of actually working with, for example, chemists who can help you to design and implement probes that you can now deliver into a cell, into a living cell, that actually respond in some way to a characteristic of the environment inside cells in a way that you can image in the living cell over time from without. And that, in, in a sense, answers the same question as physically being able to perturb the interior of the cell or make measurements of movements by following the force using carbon nanotubes. But it doesn't actually involve you piercing the membrane. So how are you imaging in, in living cells? What, what are the options there? You must have spent a lot of time thinking about this. The problem that you always run into is that actually 
Cells don't like being illuminated. It's a dirty little secret of cell biology that anybody who does live cell imaging will know. If you illuminate cells in order to follow them in time-lapse, and the illumination covers the entire cell, it will stay put. If you have a cell near the edge of your field of view, so it has a choice, part of the cell is being illuminated with bright light, perhaps intermittently, and the other part of the cell is not, over time what you see is these cells leave. It's quite extraordinary, but quite reproducible in a lot of different experimental systems. We have no idea how the cells actually get that negative uh, phototaxis to work, but it's a very obvious thing. And it leads you, I think, to then wonder, well, okay, so the cells that don't know where to run doesn't mean they're happy. It just means they don't know which direction to run away in. So I think that one of the big problems that we have is that we use light microscopy, we use high intensity light very often in order to obtain the information at the highest spatial resolution and very often we have to image repeatedly in order to get that information and that has I think still unrecognized effects. Cell sight is particularly sensitive and you very quickly see that if you're not treating your cells properly they will reach a certain point in attempting to divide and then stop so there are some types of experiment that actually, if you like, contain the internal warning that you're not getting it right and the cells are not happy. But if your system doesn't actually give you that feedback, you can be fooled into thinking that your system's perfectly healthy. And I think that understanding that is going to be quite an important thing. And I suspect that quite a lot of what we're trying to do at the margin of live cell and high resolution is actually going to turn out to be looking at really quite damaged cells desperately trying to respond. So I'd like to raise two points here. One of them is, so Professor Bo mentioned that cells don't like the exposed light, basically. <coughs> Some of the proteins do, actually. They get activated by light. And now we owe that uh, to the, I guess, studies in the optogenetics today. <coughs> and that some of the uh, parts actually like the light. I'd like to raise that point. And the second one, this is completely right that exposing light in general uh, leads to toxicity within the cell. Um, but what I've seen from the literature, recent literature, is that they're trying to come up with ways to image without visible light or uh, electron beams, but rather infrared. I think that might bring some solution unless cells don't like that either. Well, that, of course, is a way of heating cells. Um, <laughs> and some cells bask in that, and some cells don't. But actually, the other issue is, of course, if you want a shorter and shorter wavelength to improve resolution, so going in the other direction to longer and longer wavelengths has probably, and you're right, advantages in terms of reducing phototoxicity, but it's also going to constrain the kind of spatial resolution you can achieve. This takes me back to the 1980s. Uh, when I was selecting variants of metastatic and non-metastatic cells, the systems I was using, and uh, maybe it was all artifact I was measuring, but I had variants which were much more active, much more motile, uh, and they were from the metastatic cells, and from the non-metastatic segregants that were much more immobile. But uh, you just... <laughs> 
just reduce that to rubble, I think, that sort of observation. Well, not necessarily, because I mean, it's perfectly possible that, 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 that hidden in the sort of general phenomenon of yeah. photosensitivity, yeah. phototoxicity, there were real differences. I, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. argue yeah. against that. The sad thing is that my cell, when I left, my cells were removed from the freezer, and they would have been very valuable for gene studies now. And I, I'm very sad, really. I'm but for the most part, we live in an environment where the expectation of safety for any therapeutic is very much higher. And that, I think, drives this enormously expensive process of regulatory approval. The amount of material that you need to generate before you even approach the FDA with a novel compound that you think has therapeutic efficacy or is likely to have therapeutic efficacy. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, of course the MRC was very mean with money. They, they gave him sort of 50 pounds here and 50 pounds there. And, uh, it's just a fascinating story really. And uh, I think with that we're unfortunately going to have to finish. So I'm going to take this opportunity for one last thank you to our panel for lovely <laughs>